All right, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16. We're going to do just a couple more messages in the book of Acts before we're going to have some guests and different things to focus on, and before you know it, we'll be in Advent. Acts chapter 16, we're going to be picking the story back up at verse 6 in a moment, but I want to remind you of what you've already heard, that Acts is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. The good news of Jesus is that he's the reigning Lord of heaven and earth, that all authority, as we read earlier, has been given to him. But instead of using that authority to enslave people, he's actually liberating people. And it's good news because he's inviting them into life in his kingdom. He's inviting them into life that is stronger than sin, death, and evil. He's loosed the chains and forgiven us, and he's calling us to live life with him. That's the good news that's going to everyone, and if you've been following along in the story of Acts, you see how chapter after chapter, page after page, Luke, who wrote down the story, really does mean everyone. And in this section, specifically in chapter 16, you're going to see he really means everywhere also. These people are covering some miles. You see here one stretch of one journey that happens to be here in Acts 16. If you were to scale back into the Google Maps, you'd see them crisscrossing hither and yon. And this is just Paul and his crew. But you'll notice a couple red no's on the map. What we're about to see is that this gospel that's been on the move here, there, and everywhere, sure, it's been met with some opposition. Sure, it's been met with some obstacles. But these no's on the map are actually from the Spirit of God itself. What happens when we get redirected? We're going to see here in a little bit, I think, three big words when it comes to our partnership with God, even when it doesn't go the way we expect, even when it doesn't go the way we want. If we stay awake to what God is doing, we can keep on moving with Him. I'm going to read in just a moment these passages. You're going to see these cities and regions listed there. Asia, which is modern-day Turkey there, next to the sea, is actually kind of Paul's people. He kind of knows the score there. If you were to keep drawing a line from that capital A where it says Asia all the way to the coast, you'd get Ephesus. you get spaces where Paul knows people. It would make sense for them to just keep on working their way back down into familiar territory, but we're going to see the Spirit of God preventing them, and then preventing them again. Then they set sail for what's known there as Macedonia, where you'll see Philippi becomes a central moment that leads to central ministry in one of the letters of our New Testament. Let's see how he gets there. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. 
Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Weird. What's up with that? When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What's the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus? Just You can shrug your shoulders and say nothing. It's just two ways of saying the same thing. Yes, different persons of the Trinity, but the idea here is that this is God telling them, don't go there and preach good news. How weird is that? So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, now it's starting to become clearer. Verse 11. So from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. See what I'm talking about? On the move, on the move. You could do worse than Greece and the Aegean Sea. But here they are. Verse 12. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. The city's a big deal, a hustling, bustling, cosmopolitan city. And so we stayed there several days. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. Y'all know that churches like ours, didn't own buildings back then either, huh? We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she says, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is the same word that is used with those two travelers on the road to Emmaus, begging Jesus to come and have dinner with them. She persuaded them. Now they're crashing at Lydia's house. This is the word of God for the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. I graduated from seminary in 2011, and part of my exit requirements, I had to take an internship. And part of that internship was a lengthy survey and interview process just to make sure that they weren't sending out somebody that's really a crazy Christian nutcase. They wanted to record me, and they asked me all these different kinds of questions, and they sent this recording 
to some other state, some other place, and this person, God bless her, whoever she was, had to listen to these seminary graduates go on and on about all their thoughts on theology in the world. And she listened, and she made notes of those recordings, and then she also compared them to a lengthy, multiple-choice um, test. Although that's not really a test. That's why I paused there. It was really like... Um, track your beliefs or how much do you agree with this or that statement on a scale of one where you strongly disagree to five where you strongly agree. So God bless that woman that then had to look at all our little Scantron bubbles and mine that data and put it together with our interview. And I remember getting that test back and looking through her notes and thoughts because the idea is that putting those two pieces of the puzzle together is really preventing somebody from faking it. You can say one thing, but then when you go through one of those tests that ask you 250 questions that are designed to kind of tease out what you really think when you group this chunk together, it was really designed to sort out what do you really believe. And the lowest of the lowest mark on my beliefs about the nature of who God is and how God works was this statement. I can't tell you what my highest mark was. I can't tell you the highest five, but I remember the lowest. And it was this statement. Belief in the providential work of God. That was the lowest on my list. But because God has a sense of humor, after a stop at a church in East Dallas, I wind up at a church at the time called Providence Community Church. The other offer I got around that season was from, guess what? Another church called Providence Community Church. So God also had a sense of humor because I think it's what he used to get my attention. And I can tell you for the last 11 years, one of about three through lines that I'm really trying to embody and open myself up to is finding and following God in everyday life. I mean, for goodness sakes, when we become the neighborhood church, we start in 2016. So much of what we're up to with our core practices and following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood is probably me inflicting upon you and working out with you and you helping me believe that God is actually at work in my everyday, ordinary life. I love what Miguel has latched onto this idea of the ordinary spaces in and amongst work and life is where we can encounter God. Because when you really think about it, what other life do you have to live than the one you wake up, brush your teeth, drive to work, see family, see friends, come home? What other life do you have to live? And here I am, a graduate of a seminary, having studied all 66 books of the Bible, and I came out thinking, I'm not so sure that God really works providentially, which is a theological word for how God is moving and working and ordering all things in the world. Yeah, I'm not sure he's really doing that. So part of these words and so much of this message, baked and surrounded in Acts 16, is learning from Paul and company 
and reminding myself and you that really when it comes down to our mission, our partnership, our life with God, I really think it boils down to three words, and I see them very clearly in Acts 16. The three words are this, attention, intention, and then incarnation. I've preached sermons in this church just called attention and intention. So when I tell you that I'm trying to figure this out and learn this and remind myself every day, I'm telling you again, I'm having a week where I need to be attentive to God. I need to be intentional in my life with Him. And we've got to be incarnational in real relationships and real life with others. And this is exactly what Paul does even when he gets hit with these, not there, don't do this. Let's start with attention. I would define attention in our terms tonight this way. Attention means staying awake to the movement and presence of God in our everyday life. To put more of a point to it, how many of us have grown up thinking that the next book we read or the next Bible passage we check the box on in the morning is solely for information and not for our formation? It's just meant for us to believe and not meant for us to be lived. So much of us have gone whole years in our church life, and I'm here to tell you the American church today doesn't need more information. They need to be more formed into the image of Christ. And so the idea is that if we take what we've read, what we've seen, the marching orders from the Great Commission or from Paul's call to be an apostle to the nations, you're going to stay awake long enough to know where he's leading you and how he's called you to live and what he's called you to preach. So understand that Paul and Timothy and Silas are going about their way and there was something early and often that told them, don't go into Asia. And I wonder if Paul said, but, but they need to hear good news too. Don't. How do you think they experienced that don't? Do you think they had a sense in their spirit? Or do you think that there was some person that said something, something that was going on in that city. There was something circumstantial. Raise your hand if you think it was something like spiritual, like a sense, or circumstantial, like it was something preventing them. There's no wrong answer because guess what? We don't know. But I'm curious, how much of you by show of hands think that they perceived that no spiritually as a sense of we should not go that way? Or circumstantial. We just kind of look at the landscape and, hey, God, what do you think? Yeah, don't. How many show of hands think it's spiritual? We got a two-hander over here. How many of you think that it's more circumstantial? Less of you circumstantial. Let me ask you this. How do you experience a sense of to be or not to be, to go or not to go? How many of you have had this sense in your heart of hearts, this nudge, this sense that we could call spiritual? You just have this sense of don't engage, don't go that route. This job looks great on paper, however, no. Yes? How many of you have had a circumstantial way of just reading the room, reading the signs, and thinking, boy, God, 
Am I reading this right? How many of you have had a circumstantial experience? Do you see how there's no wrong answer? And sometimes we look at the book of Acts and we think, wow, the spirit of Jesus said, no, don't go that way. The Holy Spirit said, no, don't go that way. What is that like? I want you to understand that you, if you've been following Jesus, you are filled with the same Holy Spirit and you have probably had a similar sense that is do not go down this road. Do not engage in this situation. Or to flip it on the positive side, this seems like the right path. This seems like the right way. And probably it was a spiritual discerning feeling or probably it was a circumstantial situation that checked out with God. Do you understand? So much of the time we put the spirituality and practicality of acts so high on the shelf that we could never imagine what it was like in the first church. And all Luke did was wrote it down using these terms because Paul had a hunch and Timothy knew what these guys were like and it would probably be bad news bears. But they were awake to the movement and presence of God in their everyday lived experience and it guided and directed them to the point that they said, God's even working when he says no. A thought I have for you is this. God is present, speaking, and working in and through the obstacles and difficulties. What if we flipped this idea that frustration isn't just something that, God, you didn't give me what I want. What if we saw frustration as a tool of formation? What if struggle can be the soil for growth? And what if redirection can be a gift of grace? What if frustration, struggle, and redirection are used by God to get our attention and to get us unstuck? How many of you are thankful that God didn't answer that one prayer that one time? And you pumped a lot of quarters into that vending machine and you did all the right things, and you gave to church, and you did all the things that we've told you you don't got to do, but you were doing just to be safe, because you really needed God to do this. And now you look back and you say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't give me what I asked for. I have been thinking about this idea that perhaps frustration can be a tool of formation because what frustration does, what our emotions do, is put us into contact with the fact that we can reckon with things aren't right and we need to name it and we need to surrender it. We need to walk and work through it. Paul, Silas, Timothy, the others, they were awake to where God was redirecting them. And listen, they stayed awake Can we put the map back up? They stayed awake, not knowing where they were headed, for about 200 miles. Two to three weeks is a long time to still be like, okay, cool, God. There? Oh, he's still not saying anything. Okay, I guess we keep going. They're going without knowing the next step. How many of you have lived a life where God didn't just beam down a yes or no from heaven. You have to go without knowing, but here's the reality. 
when a yes came, when a dream came in Troas, he had practiced being awake and alert and practiced listening and discerning enough to where when that dream hit, the next morning they wake up and they say, I think this is where we need to go now. If it wasn't that way three weeks ago, I feel it now. They had practiced staying awake so that when the dream came, when the nudge came, when the the vision came, they were ready for it. I mentioned earlier how Miguel was like taken by this idea of the ordinary life. You mentioned a couple weeks with our youth, I think, and then here during the scripture and prayer time, this idea that the bush that called out to Moses in Exodus was always burning. I need to come clean and tell you, I didn't make that up. This is like a classic rabbinical thought. It's like a, it's just become like a a classical, like the bush was actually always burning, but Moses just happened to see it that day. I said it, I preached it, but I promise you that when I said it then, some of the old rabbis have said, the thing about that bush is that it was always burning. It's just Moses happened to see it that time. So this idea that there's always a moment when God is calling you, pay attention, pay attention. The fact is, are we actually attentive? The issue is not, is God calling or is God directing? Is God moving? The issue is, are you paying attention? I love this poem I haven't read the whole poem. It's a whole book. But it's this epic poem written by Elizabeth Barrett Browning in the 1850s. And she says this. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. To tease out our bush metaphor with Elizabeth's help. How many people would have walked right past that bush, never taking off their shoes, aware that God was there, calling, moving, working? What are the bushes that are alight at your job this week? What are the bushes that are alight in that interaction and relationship, that stuckness, that sticky problem? Perhaps God has been burning there the whole time, but you've been too busy working it out on your own that you've missed the reality that God is there even in the frustration, the struggle, and the difficulty. Every common bush of fire with God. Miguel, you can write that down and take a picture so you know that I didn't make that up, okay? But here's the way I've incorporated this thought into a prayer This is a prayer that I pray most days. May every interaction and distraction be an invitation to seek you and find you. For every moment is a light with the fire of your presence. May I live in your love, bearing the beams that you've given me in this time, in this place, And in these relationships. And may the yoke be easy and the burden light. Because we walk the way together. This day is yours. I am yours. Open hearted 
and open-handed I go. Amen. This is a prayer that I wrote because I told you I struggle to believe that God is at work in every interaction and distraction. I'm a person that meets distractions with frustration. I'm a person that has a schedule that gets away from him almost every day. I am a person that loses sight of the main thing. I'm a person that loses sight of what's the essential thing in this moment and in this time. And I just wonder that if I were to pray this in the days that I were to really be attentive to this, how would I treat that distraction who's actually a person in front of me that needs love and encouragement? Or how about the beams that he's given me? This is taken from another old poet, William Blake. He says, we're put on this earth, a little corner of heaven that, that we might learn to bear the beams of love. You have a beam this week of your job, your vocation, your family, your interaction, and you're put there in that place and in that time with those people so that you could put your shoulder up under it and do what God has called you to do. But because these are words about partnering with God, understand that what Paul and Timothy are doing is not their own platform building, it's Jesus building. So they put their shoulders up under the yoke with Jesus, and they find that the yoke may be easy and the burden light because they're not doing it on their own. You feel stuck and frustrated in your job and in your life and in this relationship. But God is saying, aren't we partnering together in this life? Isn't that what we said when you signed up and said yes? And so the question becomes before we move to the next word, what are we paying attention to? I believe that for 200 miles up and down that spot of land, Paul was paying attention to where next, and when he didn't get a sense, he looked at the next person in front of them and shared Jesus. But what are we paying attention to? Are we paying attention to the light and love of God that's leading us? Or are we more discipled by social media and cable news that we are so out of tune with the rhythms of grace and love and sacrificial service? That the way we view people, the way we talk to people, is more steeped in being right instead of being loving. More steeped in putting people and things as abstractions instead of people to whom God has called us. Have we so lost the clear call of Jesus to be a blessing to turn from sin, and to love well? Are we too attentive to things that are not steeping us in the right story? We've got to pay attention, but the second thing we've got to do is lean in with intention. Here's how I define intention for how we partner with God and how we might see it in Acts 16. Entering in unexpected places and encountering unexpected people with the expectation that God is already at work and I can partner with him. Paul and Silas and Timothy enter into an unexpected place. They didn't plan to go to Macedonia. They weren't booking their ticket to go across the sea. But they find themselves in an unexpected place, and they find people that are already attuned and listening in to God. They're already praying. They've just got to go and seal the deal because they haven't yet heard about Jesus. 
They know Jesus' dad, and they're leaning in, but they need to hear a word that says, the time is at hand. You can live this life with God now and forever. And the doorway is Jesus. It's an unexpected place, and they encounter unexpected people. We're going to meet Lydia. We're going to talk about her on our third word. But let me ask you a quick Bible trivia question. Is Lydia a Macedonian man? Isn't this hilarious? Paul has this dream, and he sees this Macedonian man. I don't know how he knew he was Macedonian. Maybe he saw him wearing the colors and the, the garb of Greece, calling, come and help us. And then they wind up in Macedonia. They go to this spot of prayer, and he sees this group of women, and Paul goes, eh, close enough, right? That's because he entered with an expectation that if God brought me this far, I'm in the right place, so I better look alive for any interaction, any distraction, confident that God is here, even in Macedonia. God is even in South Dallas. God is even in Frisco. God is there, and so when I show up, I don't got to drum up all the work because it's God's mission. He says, thanks for joining me. Wake up, pay attention, and move into this spot with an intention that you can join the work of the kingdom. But notice anything different that happens in verse 10. If you have your Bible on your phone or in front of you, I want you to pay attention to a subtle shift you won't see it in verse 9, but there's a shift. After Paul had seen the vision, we. How is that a shift? First person. The move from they to we means that someone, probably Luke, who wrote the story down, came off the bench and joined up. And now what happens in the next scene is not they did this and they preached that and he said this. It's we went. Here's another thought for you. Living with intention moves us from a passive observer to active participant. If attention wakes us up to the song Intention gets us dancing along. Get your groans out and your eye rolls. I'm a preacher for Pete's sake. We got three words that end with T-I-O-N. Give me a rhyme once in a while, okay? Living with intention moves us from passive observer to active participant. If every person in this country who claimed to follow Jesus followed Jesus in their space, in their neighborhood, would the world look different? Yes or no? But before we talk about those churches or that big church, are we here passive observers? Observers? Nobody's an observer. Or an active participant in God's kingdom mission on earth as it is in heaven. 
Attention gets us tuned into the frequency of the kingdom. And intention gets us moving and dancing and loving and serving when we show up. When we show up to the clothes closet, I'm here. This person is my neighbor. They're bearing the image of God. They are a person to be loved, not an enemy to be feared. In the kingdom of God that's been rezoned, I'm going to show up and I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to walk in. I don't see the Macedonian man I saw in my dream but I saw Lydia and a bunch of people leaning into God. So I'm going to join what God's already done and I'm gonna preach Jesus. And then God does what we can't and opens up Lydia's heart to receive good news and all of a sudden she's getting baptized into the family name because Paul was intentional. And I've been praying this week. I've been in a fog, I've been in a funk and I'm like, I'm not living intentionally this week. Sometimes we go through the motions. And sometimes it's because we're tired and we're burning out or we're numbed out. But your family, that relationship needs your intention. And you can't give 100% 100% of the time because any car on the road will show you you're going to run out of gas. But for as much as we can this week, live with intention to call people up. To speak Jesus. And Paul's strategy for doing this started with the people that he had a shared foundation with. Paul, when he goes into a city, where's the first place he goes to preach? Most of the time, 90% of the time, it ain't the, the square shouting down people. Where does he go? The synagogue. But where did he go in uh, Philippi? On a van down by the river? Is that so dated now? You know why? They didn't have a synagogue in Philippi. But they had a people who didn't have a building that met on the Sabbath to talk about the story of God and read the Old Testament scriptures and pray and give and do the life of God's people, the church. So Paul walks down. He got word and wind that because there's no synagogue, oh, there's a group of people like Lydia, who haven't fully converted, but they're there and they're leaning in and they're doing Jewish stuff to the Jewish God. And so Paul goes down there and he says, I know who Israel's long-awaited king is and his name is Jesus and he's here and you can follow him now. And she does. He starts with a shared foundation, a shared story in a shared third place. He didn't go knock on Lydia's door. He met her in a place where she was being attentive to. I love this idea. In 2018, we did, Jason and I, this thing called Kingdom Presence. It was a workshop that was talking about, like, how do we gospel to people? How do we good news people? And one of the things that, one of the concepts I, I really like is this. There are some on-ramps to help get conversations going that could feel super awkward in other ways. But the reality is that some of you this week were telling somebody about like a great show that you just watched. It just was natural, right? Well, have we talked about Jesus with people who don't quite know Jesus but are leaning in in the last six months? Maybe not. Maybe because we've hyped it up so much in our head that we don't know how to start. So before we can go drive on down 30, 
and have a powerful, life-giving conversation, sometimes this is the on-ramp that helps you get there. Because there's Lydia's in your life that are leaning in, but they're not yet adopted into the family. They know you're a Christian. It's weirder that we're not talking about it. But that's why I love this. It demystifies it. And you know how to relate to people. Don't be a weirdo. But the idea is that you can say, that's funny because that reminds me of this story that Jesus told. And at the neighborhood table, we didn't preach. We told a Jesus story. And people were giving their life to Jesus (laughs) because we told a story about Jesus. And they found him so compelling. That reminds me of a person that Jesus met and how often it upends their expectations of who Jesus was when he's rubbing elbows with known sinners. That reminds me of something Jesus taught. That reminds me of something Jesus did. That reminds me of this passage in the Bible that spoke to this human condition that we all experience. That reminds me of this time in my life where I can't explain it. Man, to me, it seemed like this was God breaking in and doing something when I needed him to. You see how different that is from, okay, I need you to admit that you're a sinner. I need you to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I need you to confess. I need you to do it by repeating this prayer after me. So would you bow your head, close your eyes, and we're like, bro, we're at a subway right now having lunch. Maybe that happens, but probably it's going to start by conversations like this demystifying the fact that Jesus told stories that connect with the deepest longings of humanity that want to know that God may be loving and is for them. The person that Jesus met is like a person you know that needs a hand up into life and forgiveness. The things that Jesus taught are for human flourishing And there is language that we can share with non-Christians about life and death. And to follow Jesus is to know life with a capital L and to know love with a capital L. And if you want anything to happen beyond this life, hitch your wagon to the one that's underneath and above and surrounding and sustaining it all. These are some on-ramps and maybe you can pray even now for a Lydia in your life. And for a conversation like this to happen and to breathe and trust that you may be intentional with it, but God's working with you. It's a co-mission. You don't have to drum it up yourself. Lydia was already listening in. Paul just came and closed the deal. Leads us to our final word, incarnation. I would name incarnation as this. Making the kingdom of God visible in our neighborhood by entering in to real relationships, real needs, and real life together. Forgive me again. Ready? It's the kingdom con carne. I didn't make that up. Another preacher said that, and I loved it because for Pete's sake, we're in Texas, and it's Tex-Mex, and that means, you know what it means. You know what it means? Say it with meat. Jesus is the word of God 
that became flesh and blood. The theological term is incarnation. Jesus is God concarne. And we who are the body of Christ are his concarne in the world, showing the world what God is like and what God is calling them to. And in our real relationships with our real needs and our real life together, we are the living embodiment of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a palace in Buckingham. It is a space in which people are living in the rhythm of God, living and saying yes to life and love. And so this is what happens when Paul enters in to their story, to their space, and by the end of the chapter, literally stays in her house. Do you think that Lydia heard more about Jesus when Paul and Timothy and Silas came and stayed at their house? Do you think at the end of chapter 16, when they get released from jail, spoiler alert, they get put in jail, and they go back to Lydia's house, that they don't tell them more about what God did in the jail? That was all possible because Lydia's open heart led to an open invitation, and they started living life together immediately. They were incarnating the kingdom. And the irony about Lydia, let's talk about her real quick, is that she was from Asia. Remember the place they weren't supposed to go? Asia. And the first convert. A lot of people say Lydia was the first European convert. Which is true to a degree so far as we know. But really Luke who wrote the story down doesn't even perceive of Europe doesn't even like make a geographical note, except that she was from the place they weren't supposed to go, in Thyatira. She was from Asia, which is ironic. She was a dealer in purple cloth, which means she was at the tippy top of the fashion industry. She's showing at New York Fashion Week. She's a judge on Project Runway, and she is the head of her household because she's banking. Lydia may have been married, but they say it's Lydia's house, and it's Lydia's household. There's something about this boss lady that was running the show in a patriarchal place, and she's hosting these apostles, and she's the one that says yes, and she says, if you think I'm a real believer, if you think that this is legit, baptize me, and guess what? They did. They baptized this woman who was not able to become a Jewish convert, but she became a Jesus convert through the waters of baptism. The way we talk about baptism in this church, and I want to share this with you again, because some of you may have kids or family members that, that you need to have an on-ramp conversation with. Baptism is a big deal, but it's not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is what comes before baptism, and that's the new birth. That's saying yes to the one who's already said yes to you. God in Christ has said yes to the world, reconciling the world to himself, forgiving our sins, and he's waiting for us to wake up and say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm here. I want in on this. God has said yes to you. I want you. I'm a, I'm a father longing for your return. So when Jesus says repent, he means turn back and believe in the good news. So what happens is you say yes. That's number one. That's like when you're born. This is John 3, John 3, 16. So the first birthday party any of our kids has ever had 
was their first birthday party. Does that happen the day after they were born? I hope y'all didn't come on some new moms and say, "Here, time for a birthday party. Although I know some of y'all did. Y'all were beating down the doors. But you didn't have the party until after. These things happen in succession. You can ask your kids, do you have a birthday party for somebody who wasn't necessarily like born? Not exactly. So we get to celebrate baptism, which is like the birthday party, because this person was born. We celebrate Cameron today because he was born so many years ago on this day. We celebrate the birth, and that's what baptism is. It's going in front of the church and saying, we're going to follow Jesus together, incarnate in this family, with this kingdom, um, because I said yes to Jesus, and he said yes to me. She opened her heart, and it opened her home, and they were baptized, and her whole household was baptized, just like with Cornelius. And I love this, if you're following along the good news to everyone everywhere as we round home. The Spirit of God has rezoned the church's ethnic neighborhood through the inclusion of the Ethiopian eunuch. The Spirit of God has rezoned the church's national neighborhood through the inclusion of a Roman military officer, Cornelius, in his household. And now the Spirit of God rezones the church's social neighborhood through the inclusion of Lydia's household. Now they've got the tippy top of fashion's upper crust that has a house that's big enough for a household and then some stinky apostles that have been walking for two to three weeks. They have different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different social statuses, and they're all sharing the table. When open hearts leads to open tables, we can become a fellowship of difference. Different ethnicities, backgrounds, and classes united in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This fellowship is the divine desire working its way through acts in our churches today. This fellowship is the answer to Jesus' prayer and the outcome of the Spirit's work. The degree to which we're attentive and intentional and incarnational should net some glimpse of this kind of fellowship. Where if a homeless person walks in, and they have and they will again, into our community, are they welcomed at our table? Shake your heads, yes. I've seen it. I know it. The people that came to the clothes closet, are they welcome at our table? Shake your heads, yes. That is only possible to the degree that we put Jesus tippy-top and what we have in him unites us more than all the other idiosyncrasies of how we vote and how we live. Jesus goes to the tippy-top and we can be a fellowship like this provided we are intentional, we pay attention, and we're incarnational. I'll close with this brief story I've shared before, I believe. Richard Rohr, a preacher, teacher, priest, was on a retreat in Thomas Merton, who's also a famous uh, writer and priest, their hermitage in Kentucky, this gorgeous monk setting. So Richard Rohr was retreating there and was walking around the grounds, 
and then saw a recluse. Not a brown recluse, a recluse. This is like a hermit's hermit. A hermit for the sake of God, right? This hermit spent 363 days alone in the woods with God, praying for the world, being formed, being contemplative. For some of you, that sounds like a dream. Where can I go to sign up? Others of us extroverts are sitting there going, what in the world? He came down on Christmas and Easter, this recluse. Well, for one reason or another, Richard Rohr is walking the grounds, and he sees this guy kind of a stone's throw away, and the recluse sees him. I guess God is cool enough to let him talk to people not on Christmas and Easter because this guy says, Richard. So Richard Rohr is immediately like confused that he even knows who he is. And so he comes up and he says, you still get to preach and teach. I don't. I need you to go out there to all those people I won't see and tell them one thing. And he gestured with his hands to the sky And he said, tell them this, God is not out there. And because he's a recluse, he didn't even finish the last of his thought. But can you finish it? If God is not out there, where is God? Here, on the move, at work. So may we pay attention to God's movement and presence. May we live with intention this week by joining God's work in the places you go and the people you encounter. And may we as a church make the kingdom of God visible in our places and with our people. For God has called us, God is sending us in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. As people of faith, we have gathered for worship. As people of faith, we now return to the world. Go out to share the story of faith, the story of life with the world around you. Pay attention to the movement of God in your midst. Live with intention, sharing good news in word and deed, making the kingdom of God visible in our neighborhood, just like the word who became flesh. As you go out to give a living witness to God's love and action in the world, go knowing that God goes with you, sharing the laughter and the hope, the fears and the tears, the victories and the struggles. Thanks be to God. Go in peace.